0: Well, we are launching forward. I'm excited about this. Welcome to Olive Branch. We are in Acts to the Future, and we're talking about the book of Acts. We're talking about what was true for the church in history is true for the church today. And there's nothing that like the momentum, right, where you come off a great week. How many had a great week this week? Two. All right. Two people had a great week. Oh, so. Some of us had a great week this week, and you come in, you have awesome worship, you just had an opportunity to just praise your God. We hear about James Project, so cool, so excited about what God's doing, good bumper, and then this sentence comes out of the pastor's mouth, there's been a scandal in the church. Now, obviously this is an illustration that there's not really been a scandal in the church, some of you can breathe now, but the point is that... There is a church somewhere, I'm sure, today that has had some elders or some leadership or some young people or whatever stand there wringing their hands, freaking out about what they're about to tell a church and say those very words, there's been a scandal in the church. And some of you have gone through scandals, you've been at churches with scandals, maybe you're back at church and you're still recovering from a scandal. Maybe that scandal has not been a church, maybe it's been in your marriage Whenever you hand your heart to someone or something, whenever you hand your time, your talent, your treasure over to someone in trust, and that trust is broken, it takes a lot to continue forward. It takes a lot to trust, doesn't it? It takes a lot to give your heart away again, to give your finances away again, to give these things away again. And in these midst of brokenness, in the midst of betrayal, there's a sense of seething anger. There's a sense of question, like, can I ever trust again? God, can you, can I trust you anymore? Some of you may have even been tempted or at some time have left the thing, the organization called the church because of scandal. And scandals all over the news, right? Scandals in the Catholic Church, scandals in the Protestant churches, scandals, scandals everywhere. And so here's the thing a scandal will break the momentum of any organization, it will halt it, hurt it, and put a lot of people in turmoil. And it's true of the ancient world as well as it is today, because if you were to look at the idea of a scandal, realize one thing the church has had a scandal. In fact, it started. With a scandal in the first church, we know the idea of a scandal by a simple name. It's called being a Judas. Anybody remember being called a Judas before? In America, we'll say you're a Benedict Arnold. Even that's not used as much anymore. Just a backstabber or a betrayer. But Judas is a term that has been used for uh, for all kinds of like scandalous things. So you got like Judas Priest, which I actually think is like a. uh, Kind of a silly name, but I understand that they're, what they were trying to do there. But the idea is Judas is this person that you don't want to be because he's a betrayer. He's a backstabber. He, 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 he's the one who took and betrayed Jesus. And yet, let's step back for a minute and back our way up with Judas. Because you know who Judas was originally? He was just like you and me, sitting out or standing out actually in the midst of a field listening to a preacher. Listening to a rabbi teach his teachings and listening to a man talk about love and talk about God and talk about God's rule and kingdom that was coming. And in his attraction to Jesus and his attraction to what Jesus was teaching, he was following him around. He was excited about what Jesus was talking about. He wanted to engage. And one day, Jesus is preaching. He's, come, he's early, up early in the morning. He's been up all night, actually, praying. And he comes out on this hillside and the crowd wakes up, and they're all kind of gathered around listening. We don't know if Jesus was kind of got into it and was like, listen, I have this thing I need to do. I'm ready to distribute my, my my teaching to 12 of you. I'm going to start a leadership. We're going to start a renewal movement in 12 guys. And so I'm praying about it, and here's the guys I want to come forward now. And so he starts naming names. He says, I want Simon and Andrew, son of Jonah, come. You guys, yeah, you two. and John and... Uh, James, come, all you guys, come here. So they start coming for and People are like, whoa, okay, those guys are fishermen. They all know each other. Jesus, what's going on? And then he goes, I would like Levi. Levi? The tax collector? That betrayer? That traitor? That guy? Yeah, I want, I want Levi. Um, and the murmurs happen around the crowd, right? People are like, what is he doing? And he goes, I want that uh, Simon. You already got Simon, Jesus. No, no, the zealot, the political guy. I want that guy. There you are. Come here. His little cadre pushes him forward, and he steps out. He's like, okay, comes forward. And people are like, and suddenly he puts him next to Levi because, you know, he knew that the zealot hated the, the tax collector. and Everybody's standing there awkwardly like, there's going to be a fight. This isn't fun. Uh, Jesus, what are you doing? And, 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 you know, finally he goes, Judas. And he's named some other guys. And, yeah, Judas, I want Judas from Iscaria, from, uh, from Iscariot, you guys, come here. And all these people would push him forward. And his friends are like, yeah, come on, go, go. Judas kind of stands there, and suddenly there's this big line of guys standing there all looking awkward, like, <laughs> why are we standing here? He's like, and Jesus is talking, and they're like, hey, this is, and he's like, okay, follow me. And they're like, oh, boardroom meeting, you know, it's like, off they go. And at some point, as Judas is doing the ministry with Jesus, he's, he's, he's seeing people healed he's watching leprosy drop he's watching blind men see he himself is casting out demons by the power of God and he's going this is incredible and one day we don't see this in any of the biographies of Jesus but one day we know this happened because at some point Jesus approached Judas and said listen I trust you I want you to handle the money and in a bag filled with money he handed over to this man Judas the responsibility to monitor the funding for the poor and so Judas walked around. He was Mr. Moneybags. And people were going, why don't you give it to Levi? Because Levi, you know, Matthew is the tax collector. He gets money. Why this guy? Yet he was trusted with it. So whenever they would come into a town, they were supposed to give out help to the poor. They started giving money over to the poor and giving it to them. And eventually Levi would go, here's three for you and one for me. Four for you and two for me. Maybe as he's buying bread, he's buying bread for the poor, and at the same time, he's buying bread for his buddies. And he's kind of like, this is great. Little tiny compromises, bit by bit, as he understood, well, if we're giving it to the poor, we're pretty poor. We don't have any money. We're walking around with nothing. It's okay if I get something to eat. It's okay if I keep just a little bit. And drip by drip, drop by drop, Judas is kind of doing his thing while in the leadership, and the people are watching, and they're thinking, that's Judas, man. That's one of the 12. That's an apostle. That's an apostle. These guys are like Jesus. These guys are the leadership. And they're excited about these powerful, awesome men. They're leaders. And eventually Judas is there when Lazarus is resurrected from the dead and everybody is amazed and wondering. And Judas is kind of like, yeah, he kind of told us he's going to do that. That's crazy. And then he's part of the whole group yelling and screaming Hosanna as he's throwing down his cloak and cutting down palm branches and they're dancing as Jesus is riding in to take over all of Jerusalem and Rome in their mind. And as Jesus marches into the temple, I wonder if Judas didn't walk in and just look at everything anew and go like, man, that is a lot of gold on that temple Wow, those priests are really dressed nice. Wow, that's a lot of power for the Roman Empire. We don't know what got into Judas' mind. But by the end of that week, he was so disillusioned with the Jesus movement that he had turned around and gone to the very leadership of Israel and said, Listen, you want me to betray him for you? I'll do it. And And he says, How much will you pay me? They're like, Yeah, 30 pieces of silver, just the price of an average slave. And he's like, Yeah, yeah, I'll take that gathers a band after they've all been sitting, and Jesus has just washed his feet, just humbled himself. We don't know if he was disgusted by it or what, but the power that is in this world that is opposed to God had come into him, namely Satan, and he had at that point determined that he was going to be on the side against Jesus and marched out, found a cadre of of people given by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, and marched and found Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas himself had now ceased to be this leader everybody looked up to, and in a simple kiss to Jesus, betrayed him over to be crucified, abused, and everything else. Now we can sit there and go, man, what a a jerk. Yet imagine what the rest of the people thought when Judas appeared and Jesus is betrayed and then he's killed. Here's what they thought. They thought, this is over. I'm done with this. This is Jesus is dead. The leadership is corrupt. This is over. Scandal has stopped the movement of Jesus. And for three days, there was nobody who was following Jesus. The scandal had effectively destroyed everything that Jesus had ever attempted to do. And a scandal can do that to you, and it can do that to me. A scandal can effectively stop everything God has been intending to do in your life. A betrayal can crush and destroy you, so much so that you can't trust the church. You can't trust other people. You can't trust God. You may be here today wrestling with the very difficulty of giving away that trust. And yet what we find, strangely, as Dr. Luke, who we met last week, he's a Historian who was asked by a Roman leader to write out what had really happened amongst in um, with Jesus and the Jesus movement in his two bio- in his two-part biography, he's talked about in the first one we know it as the Gospel of Luke. Today, he he wrote out all of his information he had acquired and researched. In one document, what Jesus did, and the second one was what Jesus continued to do through the church, which he himself was an eyewitness and experience of. And he wrote out these two scrolls. In the middle of the second scroll, the very beginning, as he described what had happened to Jesus, he comes and suddenly what we find is not a broken, dispersed group of people. We find a unified group of 11 men standing around together. We find a, a group of people connected, and yet we still have yet to have found out what happened to Judas. Judas. We've got these guys who are gathered for some reason and Judas who's missing. Did he get away with it? Maybe some people have wondered when that person who has um, done a scandal or broken your trust, you wonder they vanished. Did they get away with it? Are they able to just leave and nothing happened? Well, I think um, Dr. Luke was aware that people were wondering, what happened to Judas? What happened to this guy? Because he didn't tell you in the first document. So in the second he picks it up, and and what we read is this, that this man, Judas, had acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. That is just nasty. It's a great junior high verse. But that is... uh, it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, which is, that is the field of blood. Now, what's interesting about this is that Levi, or Matthew, in his biography of Jesus, he gives a different death to, to Judas. Judas had taken the money, and in a sense of remorse, thrown it back into the temple, saying, I don't want this. You guys have it. I gotta, I did something wrong, and they took, and they took it, and Judas went off and hung himself. Now, They eventually bought the field that Judas had hung himself in, and so it was in his name. And so Judas had hung there until his rope broke, and in in the bloated state that he was in after having hung himself, he burst open. And so the two can be put together. But the bottom line that Dr. Luke is trying to let you know is the betrayer didn't have a happy life. He didn't get away with it. Ultimately, it did destroy him. And ultimately, all betrayal, all this kind of scandal does not help the, ever help the person who did it. They go through their own suffering. Some of you who, have prob- who, have got, who may have been in that position where you have done something to break someone's trust, know it is a horrible road back, and it is hard. And so here is Judas dead, and the scandal with him is alive, it seems, and yet at the same time, what we find is not, is not a broken, dispersed group of people. Again, you find them gathered. We see this as, as Dr. Luke continues. Uh, if you want, you can grab a Bible and open it up to page 909. And the Bible's in, in here and you look at it. We'll be using two different versions today just because it, it kind of rolled better off as you read it. But what I want you to do is just see this in verse, beginning of verse 12. It starts, Then they, meaning um, these men, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas the son of James, a different guy. Judas was a common name, not very common today. But 11 guys have gathered together. These same 11 you'll find earlier. They didn't lose a single leader in the scandal. They didn't, in fact, lose a single person. They gained people after the scandal. Now, what in the world explains this? How do you go from a scandal which destroys the movement to only 43 days later, they're all sitting in a room excited and praying about God's power to come upon them, and then from this, a movement will explode that within 300 years will take over the might of the Roman Empire. How do we explain this except the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? That is the key piece that historians still who don't believe in the resurrection, if you're not connected with the idea that Jesus truly rose from the dead in history, you have to explain how a movement that changes the world starts from a scandal. Because that's what it was. Such a deep scandal from one of the upper tiered leaders And the very leader himself had been killed because of it. How do you go? Well, we'll just make up that he rose from the dead, and that'll just solve the scandal. No. Something has to happen that's so magnificent, so powerful, that it makes them not look at the scandal, but view something as alive, and the scandal is dead. And the only answer that we have in history is that they kept their eyes on the risen leader and not on the earthly ones. And herein is a key as you and I handle and deal with scandals that occur in this world. If you want to handle a scandal in your church or in your life, keep your eyes fixated on the risen Jesus, not on the earthly one who harmed you or the leaders. It's so important that churches will go through these things. People will go through these things. The question is, will you keep your eye on Christ or will you keep your eye on humans who are fallen and these men kept their eye on jesus what's beautiful is that jesus has risen from the dead and in his rising he didn't say to the tw- to the the 11 that were left uh, you guys all abandoned me and peter you especially stink because you denied me three times buddy you're done i'm rebuilding i want 12 new guys No, in fact, he brought Peter back. He reconciled that. He reconciled with all of these men who had abandoned him and ignored him. And I want you to, I believe that if Judas had been alive and had kept himself alive, I even think he would have reconciled with Judas. Now, that's speculation. But that is the heart of Jesus, isn't it? And that if you find yourself in a situation where you've been a producer of a scandal, I do not believe that Jesus has rejected you. I don't think maybe you'll ever acquire to the same level of leadership. That's up to the Lord. But I don't think he throws you out. And I don't think we should throw them out either. But when we have scandal in the church, we keep our eyes on the risen Lord, not on the earthly people, and we let the Lord do the work and the healing in the church. Amen? Scandals can be overcome. Scandals are not fun. They're not good. They're ugly. They're hard. They're vicious. They're cruel. And yet, we handle the scandal by looking at the risen Jesus. If there's no risen Jesus, yeah, guys, we don't have a whole lot. But he's alive. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, even over your marriage, even over your church, even over that person or group that has betrayed you and you've broken trust. There's no need to abandon the faith because your faith isn't in the institution called the church. Your faith is in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. When we capture this, then we begin to have an ability to keep our eye on Jesus. And this, I think, also helps us then to step back and say, okay, if scandals are going to happen because human beings are fallen, how do we minimize it? Just just for the sake of having the conversation. There's so many scandals happening out there. How do we minimize scandals in the church with leadership? And I think that's an important conversation. And again, it goes back to some of those similar principles. We want to help avoid scandal. First of all, by treating your leaders as fellow Christians. Would you treat him like a fellow Christian? Let me explain this. There's a tendency within the church to do one of two things with a leader, especially the key leader like the senior pastor or something like that, with elders and others. What we want to do is realize some of us want to turn them into either a celebrity or a slave. And either one is, right, is wrongly positioning your leadership. It's damaging not only to that leader but to you. You see, if we turn leaders into celebrities because they got great Twitter accounts and man, they're awesome on YouTube and dude, they just rock on Instagram. They produce the best Facebook videos you've ever seen in your life and these leaders are super hip and cool and they dress really well, woo, danger alert. Don't puff a leader up and put him into celebrity status. Oftentimes, human beings can't handle this. It seeps into their heart as pride. Who was, in fact, one of the deepest reasons Francis Chan in an interview I heard him backed away from his leadership position in a megachurch because he was uh, realizing he was becoming a name and no longer just a person. And when we put people and bloat them up, their egos grow and all of this problem happens. And here's the thing, guys. We need to treat us as just simply gifted people like you. See, I'm not the only gifted person in the room. The danger is to turn a leader into the anointed. You ever heard somebody say the pastor is the anointed of our church? It's not our language around here. Some of you have been in churches. They're like, oh, the pastor, he's anointed. Let me just say something. That's an old... That's an Old Testament Hebrew, Hebrew Bible kind of conversation. There were two people who were anointed. It was the high priest and there was the king. And they would anoint these people and they were the anointed. When you take that conversation and it rolls into the New Testament, rolls into this, the, the information we have as our Christian Bible, what you will discover is that the Christian Bible never uses anointed in that way because the anointed is translated by a Greek word. You know what a Greek word that is? Christos. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. A lot of people go, Jesus, Jesus Christ. That's his, No, Jesus, the anointed one. See, when you want to claim the pastor's the anointed, you're claiming he's the Christ. That's not the case. Trust me, I'm nowhere near that. And neither is anyone else on our staff. I work with them, okay? Just believe me. No, we don't want to claim that I am only as anointed as I am following the anointed one, Jesus, and so are you. See, the Spirit of God dwells within you as much as he dwells within me. He has gifted you with gifts that are different than mine. Some of you have great gifts of faith. Some of you have great gifts of discernment. Others of you have great gifts in giving. Some of you have great gifts to the ability to serve and counsel. Some of us have leadership gifts. I have a gift of teaching and preaching. The differences in our gifts is only what God wants to do. It isn't to celebritize us. And I want to tell you something, guys. If we do this with a person, when they fail, your faith will fail. If you pour your faith into the celebrity, don't keep your eyes on the risen Lord, but the earthly ones. But the other danger is to turn our pastors and our leadership into our slaves. Well, I'm here. I give good tithe. I do this stuff. You guys should fix these problems. Time out. One of the most dangerous things you can do is assume that they are our, that we as leaders are your slaves. No, I am the equipment manager. I am. I run the locker room here at the church, and my goal is to hand out equipment to you guys do the game? You guys get out there in the world. I don't get out there. I don't get connected with my with a lot of non Christians as much as I should and I, I desire to. But I get to give you guys all the equipment so you get out there and love people and care for people and make a difference in this world through the love of Jesus Christ. That's the goal: to love, live, and share Him wherever we go. And I'm just handing it out. Now, does that mean does that mean I'm your slave? No, I'm a slave of Christ just as you are. But we're here to serve one another. I'm not your slave. You're not mine. Just because you volunteer here doesn't mean I get to go. Like, no, you need to. Da, da, da. No, no, no. We're here to work with each other and to share in the blessings of each other. Now, there's there's an important piece here, because the danger when we get into the mentality of consumerism, where we turn them into our our servants, our waiters, our waitresses, our slaves, is that when you see something wrong, we do. A net, and church is great at this. I've been here for years. I've been in other churches. We are really good at the drive-by complaint. Anybody ever experienced a drive-by complaining before? It's literally like, I saw this problem, no, 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 name, no availability, I don't know who you are, just problem, turn it in. That's a drive-by complaining. What you don't see when you drive-by complain is how deeply it injures the people who are trying to serve you every single week, who understand that their paycheck is paid because you willingly, generously give, and it hurts when we can't address it. Here's the thing, you see it because you sit and you get to see it in from a different perspective. We're in it, we're trying to give it, and so we don't always see the problems. We don't always know the issues. Now we do, a lot of them, we're trying to fix things, and so I'm not saying don't give feedback. But here's the thing, if you see it's wrong, you, God has given you the responsibility to be part of the solution. Let me say that again, if you see that it's wrong, no, God just gave you the responsibility to be part of the solution. not to be the mouth of the, Not to be the mouth of the problem. We want to be solution makers. When that happens, you lower the stress of your leadership. You enable them not to become burned out and fall into sin in places. You give them opportunities to have breath and go see a counselor if they need it, or to or to keep each other accountable because not everything's in the room. When we do the complaining, it raises the temperature. It causes fear. It disables us from approaching you because all we don't know what you're going to say. And it just might be a drive-by complaining today. And so there's a fear and a gap. We don't want to treat people servilely. We don't want to treat them like celebrities, but we also don't want to just say, it's all you guys. Get the work done. I pay, I pay your paycheck. I understand that mentality. Maybe you were treated like that from a boss, but you don't follow me, and I don't work for you. I work for Jesus Christ. So do you. We're all here on equal ground in the church, we're all here together to serve unless you're not. The danger is to not use your gift that God has anointed you to use because his presence is upon you to do the work of ministry amongst the people that you're surrounded with so that we can carry the load together. When we don't carry the load together, we'll fall upon leadership and staff and they will burn out and there will be scandal. When we all carry together, we walk together and the load is lighter and there's greater work that can be done. And so if we want to avoid a scandal, we need to treat our leaders like they're regular Christians, like you and like me. Now, yeah, we're paid and I, we'll get into that in a second. But I just want to address this because the responsibility is on both sides, right? I'm a pastor. I've got to watch my behavior. I've got to be careful. I'm called to a standard. I've got to keep my eye on Jesus. Second thing then is pray for us then because there's plenty of spiritual attack. The enemy knows that he could take down a leader. He's going to stop a movement. The enemy is all over it. If he can't take down the leader, guess who he takes down next? Their family. If he can't take down their family, you know who they take down? The congregation. There's always available opportunity for the enemy if we're not praying. If Paul, the church planner in every church he planted, said these words, basically, brothers, pray for us, and I think that's how he said it, it wasn't like, oh, pray for us. No, it was like, pray for us, please. We need it. A guy who's going in and out of jail, a guy who's being challenged every time he goes somewhere. No, we need prayer. You need to be praying for your leadership. Pray for your elders and their wives. Pray for those who are volunteering and overseeing your ministry or helping you out or watching your kids. Guys, we should be begging God to protect and empower and transform these people so they keep their eye on the risen leader. And so we aim ourselves and keep pressing ourselves to pray for one another. We need prayer warriors. We need people who have great faith to be part of our prayer team. It is not, a, and it's not an afterthought. Prayer is the central energy of the church as God answers and works. And if you've considered yourself a prayer person, we need people praying. Pray for us. Pray for the leadership. And this is especially true because, guys, um, just to be honest, if you want to pray for the leadership in your church, pray for them especially on Monday morning. I, I don't know what it is, but you get to the end of your day after preaching and it's sin in your heart at times because you're looking at attendance numbers and you're depressed because people decide, I'm going to take a break from church today, which I never understood because you are the church, you can't take a break from it. Um, to, you know, I you know I, I get it. There's We're busy. We're Americans. This is how it works. But you wake up the next morning and you're depressed, doesn't matter how good it goes. There's an immediate and a normal spiritual attack some, for some strange reason on Monday. I just want to encourage you guys, pray, pray for your leadership. more pastors I talk to, you are more prone on Monday than any other day for sin to break in. So if you wake up on Monday morning, you're thinking, oh, I got a horrible week ahead. Take that and just turn it and in, translate into prayer. I'll pray for you, you pray for me. So we'll just do that together. But then finally is support your leaders well. Now I won't dwell long on this because this is an uncomfortable subject for me to talk about because it sounds very self-aimed. Um, and what I mean by this is that there are plenty of pastors in, in this world, and it's not necessarily true of us, although I'd love to pay our leadership better. Um, there are plenty of pastors and there's plenty of congregations that believe, well, you're the servant of God. We don't need to pay you that well. When that happens, your stress levels of your leadership are going to rise above the roof. As they wonder, how am I going to pay for my kid's uh, clothing, how am I going to pay for my house, how am I going to do these kind of things, and there's a lot of stress that goes on, and it's no wonder Paul always taught them, hey, elders who do their work well, or leaders who do their work well, should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching, For the scripture says, you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain, and another place, those who work deserve their pay, now, again, I'm going to brush by this, two dangers, obviously, pastors aren't supposed to get rich off their, pop, off their congregation, okay, those that do are in sin. But at the same time, those pastors who can't make their ends meet because their congregation won't give out of a philosophy, the congregation's in sin. All I believe this is saying is that if a pastor has to live and breathe and eat in an area, he should be able to live and breathe and eat in that area. That's about it. Are their needs met? Are the leadership's needs met? And that's up for you guys to pray because we understand we don't make money, we don't produce goods. We serve you, and you guys, out of the generosity of your hearts, provide for us our ability to live life. We're at your mercy, and we know that. And you guys are, let me just stop here for a minute and just thank you, because you are a very generous church. In the average average churches of America, you guys are way up, way, way up in your generosity. And so uh, on behalf of the staff, let me just say thank you. And praise God that you guys care for us the way that you do and the ministry the way that you do. Thank you. Now, as we move forward, those scandals still is possible. You can do all these things right, pray for people, and even more. Because guess what? Scandal happened, and Jesus was the leader. (laughs) So we're dealing with sinful humans. And no perfect leader can create perfect congregations, and no perfect congregation can produce perfect leaders. There is none of that stuff. Even the perfect leader had, a, had one who, who betrayed and broke, and I know it's like, hey, this is predicted, and this was going to happen, and I understand that. But Judas still chose. He still made the compromises. And so the danger is that we want to see that Jesus still was going to rebuild his church. He didn't leave it alone. He was resurrected. He's didn't have to leave it. For some reason, he chose 12 apostles, probably because it was a renewal movement. But I want to say one quick thing. Some of you guys have rejected church just to follow Jesus. Hear that if you believe that you can't be a part of an organized religion, you don't like Jesus, because Jesus organized his religion. He organized around 12 men, and in every instance of the church from this period on, there would be an organization around the church. Elders and deacons and bishops and all these things are created out of an image of Jesus and set up organization. and So they are going to fill in the 12th person. And so it begins as we continue. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women and brothers of Jesus. So the families there, like I said, they grew. They didn't shrink after the scandal. They grew. And so it goes on. During this time when about 120 believers were together in one place, they're in the upper room. That really changes my vision of what happened when Jesus was washing feet. How many people were actually in there? It was a lot. They were together in one place. Peter stood up and addressed them. Brothers, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit, speaking through King David. Now, he's speaking here of the Psalms, and, and the book of Psalms is like the CD jacket of the ancient Israelite best hits, okay? You guys remember what CD jackets are? We don't really buy CDs anymore. You used to open them up, and there were the lyrics inside. And that's what these is, the lyric charts. And so you you have it today in, in the Hebrew Bible as the book of Psalms. They're singing these songs as they're praying together. And suddenly it strikes Peter that there is this information about Judas in there. And he says, Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. Then it breaks out what happened to Judas, and so we'll move on. Peter continued, this was written in the book of Psalms where it said, let his home become desolate, or let his place, his space, his spot, become desolate with no one living in it or no one dwelling in it. So they saw that as, hey, the 12 guys, his is missing. So let someone else take his position. They found these in a section of the songs in which David, who is the bloody king, David was the ideal king in the Israelites' mind, powerful warrior, man of God, wrote these songs. This guy was awesome, right? Man's man singing great songs. In fact, some of his songs came out in this way. God, I'm the king, and I'm I'm the representative of Israel, and these guys are against me. Destroy them, blow up their homes, crush them, God. Amen. I asked Mark to write us a worship song like that. He's like, I can't do that. (laughs) And we shouldn't, because the disciples didn't read this as how they should act. They read this as this was the betrayal that happened to Jesus, who is the king, who is the representative of Israel. Therefore, these prayers that are found in the scripture ought to be applied to those who betrayed and gave Jesus over to crucifixion. And so they read this in this manner, that here is what is saying about Judas, that his place should be desolate and he should have someone else take his position. So they make a conclusion. So, now we got to choose replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus from the time he was baptized until by John until the day he was taken from us. So that's the whole time from the baptism of John way back, you know, the dove coming down, God saying, "This is my this is my son, and who am I well pleased?" You're not a whole thing. And then it goes on until the day he was taken from us, taken up. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So they look around, and they're like, oh, it's James. Oh, no, it should be Jesus' family, right? Nepotism, this is a great idea. He's, you know, the, the, the brother of the king, so that makes him like the prince. He should be, no. They nominate two men. Out of the 120, only two could be found. Two are put forward, and Joseph, called Bersabbas, known as Justice, that's a lot of names, and Matthias, then they prayed, O oh Lord, you know every heart, show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry, for he has deserves us and gone the way where he belongs. And they cast lots, it's like they took some dice or they flipped a coin, some kind of device, maybe they spun a bottle, we don't know what it was. But in the end, the lot fell on Matthias and he was selected to become an apostle with the other 11, and so the 12th position was filled. After studying this, we have determined this is how we will always fill every leadership position in the church from now on. (laughs) Obviously, that's not what the truth, that's not how this text is supposed to be interpreted. This is not a, a methodology of selection. When you have a scandal in an organization, a good organization backs away from the scandal, examines the situation, and asks questions. Why did this happen? What would make a difference? And how can we help people trust us again? And in their selection of a replacement, they're going to address those very issues. We'd consider them the core values. And it produces a job description. We find that job description, Peter already laid it out. He wanted some core pieces. And I believe these core pieces are what apply to leadership in a church. So as you think of leaders, you pray for leaders or aspire to leadership, as you seek to be a volunteer and you find yourself becoming a volunteer over volunteers and you start growing in your leadership lid, know that God may be doing something and look at this list. The first one is leaders are to be faithful. Leaders ought to be faithful. What do I mean Notice what Peter has said. He says, so now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time. From John the Baptist all the way to when he ascended. They need to be there the whole time. Unlike Judas, who didn't make it all the way. He was unfaithful. And guess what? There were few men who were that faithful to be there when John the Baptist was preaching and hanging out. We think it's just like a few guys now, like 12 guys roaming around Jesus. There's at least 14 listening to every sermon, watching everything about Jesus from when he was baptized, following him around. They never got their name called, but they were still there. They never got picked out, but they were still following. They heard Jesus say, you need to eat my body and drink my blood. And everybody's like, that's freaky. And a bunch of people left, and these two guys were still there. This is faithfulness all the way to the garden when everybody's praying, they're sleeping, everybody wakes up, Judas betrays them. They scatter and yet they were still there when Jesus begins to give information. Perhaps they were the two walking on the road of Emmaus, we don't know. But what we see here is these men were faithful, which tells me something. If you're a young Christian, at the beginning of your faith journey and you want to aspire to being a pastor or you want to join in ministry someday, it's a noble thing to do. But give yourself time. Your faith needs to be tested. It needs to be pushed on. It needs to be challenged. You need to have strong questions poked in your chest. You need to go through seasons of doubt and come out the other end stronger than when you went in. You need to go through seasons of suffering so that when you emerge, you know you still have Jesus the risen leader in your sights. You need to be tested. And guess what? That means some of you who are in a season of doubt right now, some of you who are going through suffering and you're sitting back going, why is God putting me through this? It doesn't seem other people have to go through what I'm going through. It may be that God is testing your faith to prepare you for leadership. He may be testing your faith to embolden you and empower you with a knowledge that God is with you. Who can be against you? That Jesus has risen regardless of what's gone on in my life. And so if you are there and you're being tested, hang on. You don't know what God's developing in you. He may be preparing you for leadership because the leader is to be faithful. Second, the leader ought to be somebody you know knows Jesus. They know him. Notice again, they didn't follow around anybody, right? They had to travel with the Lord Jesus every time he went in and out is another translation. Every time Jesus was amongst them, they were there. The teachings of Jesus had rubbed off on them. They were gracious and kind like Jesus. They believed God could heal like Jesus did. They believed these, they were out there, and here's the thing. I think the few things, you should see the fruit. All that stuff that we talked about in the wannabe series ought to be something you're seeing born in your leaders. That's why I'm tenuring my resignation as soon as possible. That's right? kind of how you feel when you self-evaluate. That was a joke. It's okay. You can breathe. But that's how you feel. When you self-evaluate, you're never good enough. I think that's kind of what it means to be with Jesus. You know, he's calling it out of you. He's shaping and transforming you. And you're taking those steps because you're walking with him every day as best as you can. This also means a good leader is one of those people who's oftentimes liked and has a good reputation by those who don't know Jesus. They're not brash and cruel. No, people liked Jesus who didn't follow Jesus. He sat amongst the drug addicts of his day and the sex addicts of his day and Jesus was liked by them. And I think a good leader knows how to hold their faith and yet engage a world that is vastly different than them. And these are the kind of people we need to be our leaders, to take us into places that otherwise we may be uncomfortable, but to show us how to love those who need to be loved the most. And they self-sacrifice in their love. Finally, we need to see leaders should be able to witness to Jesus' resurrection. They need to be able to tell the gospel. Notice again, he says, and they will join us as a witness to this resurrection, to Jesus' resurrection. These, look, we've got to be the ones who are able to display and understand how to tell somebody Jesus is risen. Guys, I don't think Jesus was risen. I know he was risen. You go, well, how can you know that? I know it because there are some elements in history that cannot be squared. For example, that a church movement would start with a scandal can't be squared if something powerful didn't draw these men back together under the fear of the Roman Empire to become men who were going to proclaim Jesus even though they were tortured to death. That doesn't square if Jesus didn't rise. Quick question. How many of you have brothers? Anybody got a brother in the room? Throw your hand up. All right. How many of you guys would like, be? yeah, my brother's the son of God? Throw your hand up. (laughs) Yeah, right. How hard would it be to believe your brother was the son of God? James didn't believe it either. James, Jesus' brother, grew up with Jesus. You know what he said when his brother went around preaching? My brother's crazy. I was with him. I know him. You know, it's not like, can you imagine growing up with Jesus, right? We all think it'd be like, Mom, Jesus is walking on the water again. Sit down against the bathtub. You know, it's not working real well. Mom's walking up. Hey, who broke this pot? Oh, I didn't do it. Jesus did it. Jesus, did you break this pot? No, Mom. James did it. James, why are you looking at me? Because he never lies. Oh! You know, that's not how it was. James grew up... And when it came to ministry, he didn't believe in his brother. And yet something happened that James is in this room. And James will become the leader of the Jerusalem church. Something shifts that James goes from, he's crazy, to, no, he was the son of God. And it's interesting because Paul says in a small little creed that was shared with him that he got from the church, then he appeared to James some point in these 40 days, Jesus showed himself to his brother alive. Man, I would love to have been there. He's sitting there sawing because he would have been a carpenter too. James, hold on. No, James, I need to talk. Oh my gosh. Oh my, you're God. What? No. Uh, Wow. James, I need to, uh, whoa, you're not crazy. You weren't crazy. I know I'm not, I'm alive. I'm here. It's okay here. Feel my hands. You're good. Oh, wow, oh, man, Jesus, whoa, that means that you're, that. whoa, oh, dude, that thing I did to you when I was seven? I am so, imagine where that went. Something flipped and James is in the room and he's praying and he's proclaiming his brothers alive. How do you explain that if Jesus isn't alive? How can Paul go from the main persecutor of the church to the greatest church planter of the church? He has no reason to get any gain or value out of it. The only answer is for the movement of the church to exist, for these men to die for this thing that they claim happened, for them to write it down and to pass it on is because Jesus is alive. Not only that... Guys, that means that if there's a scandal that hits a church, that means if the news reports continue to flow, evil thoughts about what has happened amongst leaders in churches, you do not keep your eyes on the earthly leaders, you keep your eye on the risen one. He is your Lord. Don't make these men celebrities. Don't make them slaves. Join in the work of Jesus. Get into the work that God has called you to, empowered you to. His spirit is with you. This is our witness. He has risen from the dead, and he has sent us into all the world to make disciples. Guys, what was true for them is true for us, and it's time. No scandal can stop it. No brokenness can defeat the movement. It cannot defeat it in your heart. It cannot defeat it in this church, for Jesus is risen. Keep your eyes on him. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are to be exalted in the nations, known amongst all men that you are the God of gods and Lord of lords because you have sent your son, Jesus, the perfect one who would take our sin, who would bear it on the cross, who would give us an opportunity to know you. May you be exalted for that. May we take this message to this world. May we take this information to bring healing to hearts. Though they may have betrayed others, though they may have broken and betrayed you, God, you love them. You've called them back to you. Bring them, we pray. Open the door, for you have made a way. We ask that you now would open our hearts to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.